This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, one of my favorite topics to cover on this show is how other people with unique skill sets and talents look at the natural world and the ecological design process. I've been really fortunate in my network of designers, educators, farmers, and academics to peer into the specialties of ecological understanding and design thinking from many points of view. And today is one of those opportunities. Now, I first met Henry Anderson through a design project that our mutual friend Juan Pablo was working on in Portugal through the Climate Farmers Pioneer Program. We were looking at a feasibility test for a 50-hectare plot that some investors were considering as an investment in regenerative agriculture. Juan Pablo introduced me to Henry as a colleague who would look into all the potential for leveraging native plant communities for ecological restoration and high-value crops. I was immediately impressed by Henry's extensive knowledge of biomes and plant communities in Portugal, and together we all developed a really elegant mixed agroforestry design for the clients. Now, long story short, the investment wasn't picked up, but all three of us have been good friends ever since, and now I've got Henry back to share some of his knowledge and experience as a biologist and a designer. Now, Henry is a Scottish multidisciplinary designer based in Lisbon, Portugal, with a background in landscape architecture, urban design, and ecological planning. He's accumulated over 14 years of professional experience working for leading architectural and landscape offices from around the world, including in Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, the United Kingdom, and Portugal. Henry now specializes in delivering best practice regenerative solutions for landscape architecture, agriculture, and ecological restoration projects within the Mediterranean biome, and follows an ecology-led process that delivers multifunctional outcomes specific to each project's unique context. Now, in this conversation, we talk at length about the process in which Henry starts to assess and investigate the state of ecological health and identify the plants and the wildlife on a site, essentially his form of reading a landscape. We also look at the tools and the resources that can expand the research process and give insights into historical land use and plant communities to open up more options for design. Now, together, we also dissect the concept of natural succession, and how you can leverage this trajectory to enhance and speed up the development of your project, and of course, a lot more as well. So for those of you who love the deeper science of ecology and biology, but maybe find the academic approach to it a little bit too disconnected, this is the interview for you since Henry has a unique way of explaining and making connections between the abstract concepts and real life applications. So I'll hand things over now to Henry Anderson. 
Welcome, Henry. Great to talk to you again. It's been a little while since we were regularly collaborating. How are you doing today? Good morning, Oliver. Pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, it has been a while, so it's good to catch up. And uh, I'm fine, thank you. Just uh, enjoying the first couple of hot days in Lisbon with the start of summer, so looking forward to that. But uh, everything's good my side. Nice one, Matt. How has the season been for you guys? I heard it's been really dry since the spring, like it was. Yes, here. it's been really, really dry since uh, February, end of February. We actually had a pretty big series of floods in Lisbon, uh, December, January. And after that, there was a four-month drought. So I believe since I've lived here, it's been the longest drought period in spring, which is very unusual. Yeah. But we had a bit of rain last week, so... Hopefully that appeases <laughs> appeases the water gods slightly. We'll see. Yeah. Well, look, so you and I first got in touch when we collaborated on the second pioneer program that I was running with Climate Farmers. And you were helping out our mutual friend, Juan Pablo, to look at the feasibility of a piece of land that you were considering for the development and investment in a regenerative farming project. But before we go into how we worked on that, I'd love to know about, first of all, how did a Scotsman end up in Portugal? And what is it that you do and how you got there? Well, that's a good question. And my background is as a landscape architect and urban designer. And I was uh, working a lot in Northern Europe. I studied in Edinburgh and worked in Germany and Netherlands. I went to Australia for a bit working there and worked eventually in the UK as well. And well, my parents always had a farm in the south of Portugal, uh, mostly citrus. I think uh, the main, main crop was mandarins. And we'd go there every Easter to help out with the harvest. And that was, that was a long, long time. That was about 12 or 13 years we ran that. And I always had this connection to Portugal. So when the time came and I was making a change in direction from working more in corporate landscape architecture, uh, more in urban projects, I really wanted to come back to Portugal, sort of reconnect with my roots and start to explore a different direction within my design approach. So we picked Lisbon as our base. That's how we ended up here, actually, about three years ago now. Brilliant. And so you've been also increasing your studies and your focus on the biology, the plant communities around Portugal. This is what we were relying on you on for the design portion of that project that we collaborated with. Where did the love and the interest for the different biomes and plant communities in Portugal and the Mediterranean come from? Well, when I was studying, we did a year of botany at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh. And my background really is on Northern European temperate flora. So not exactly Mediterranean. <laughs> and uh, it was back in early 2020, about two weeks uh, before COVID started, I went to work on a farm in sort of northeast, north, uh, central east Portugal in an area called Castelo Branco um for three months i was doing some holistic grazing with sheep and just working a little bit on uh on the vegetable the market garden and stuff and i very rarely have these eureka light bulb moments but i just uh had this sort of 
inspiration or this uh, sudden passion to research Portuguese flora. And I, I knew very, very little about the ecology of Portugal, or especially central and southern Portugal, the, the Mediterranean parts of Portugal. But of course, I studied ecology, a bit of botany, and the landscape Arctic. So um, I started to look into it, and then it really just snowballed from there. And I started building my own species databases and trying to understand the ecology of the Mediterranean and doing a lot of hiking, a lot of hiking. So really just getting outside, going to really interesting locations within Portugal that have been fairly well conserved and exhibited a pretty high level of biodiversity. So that was, that was, this, that was the way to get into it really, is just get outside, get on foot and go to these places and really just do your own surveys and also understand the geology. So it's super important just to become familiar with the topography and geology of Portugal and really immerse yourself in that. And then you get a much better idea of how to find these plant communities and how to study them and how the different vegetation communities are composed, how the different plants come together as uh, companions and so forth. So that's something you really, you, you know, you really have to do the desktop studying, but also you need, really need to get outside and explore and hike and that's that's what i did <laughs> yeah well so we've talked in the past about how the fact that i am in the similar process of doing surveys and understanding the biological communities where i've settled now and i'm curious how much did you learn and was useful to you from your academic studies of botany when you went out and did this and what are some of the main learnings that you did when you just got out in the field and started doing it on a day-to-day -day basis on your hikes well, the first thing you notice is everything in a seasonal sense is backwards. <laughs> everything is upside down, you know? It's yeah. got a lot long, long dry summer, mild wet winters. So it's the complete opposite of a, an Atlantic temperate climate. So everything is dormant during the summer and springtime is just an absolute explosion of growth. And if it rains. Yeah, if it, if it rains. <laughs> and it's, you know, the concentration of the flowering period and everything else. So it's it's almost like starting from scratch it's really it's really just unlearning everything you've previously learned and then just being a completely blank slate to absorb all this new information and that's actually part of the the, the great pleasure in pursuing this it's just really like uh, going back to the basics again and uh, eliminating all your assumptions about about nature and trying to relearn everything but of course the the basic principles of botany apply universally so that was obviously obviously very helpful, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very sort of uh, pleasurable experience, you know. And that's what kept motivating me to go go forward over the last three years and just keep expanding my knowledge. Yeah. Well, so that knowledge has turned into quite an incredible resource, which is not yet publicly available. But you've been kind enough to give me a window into what you've been building from this survey of yours. Can you talk about this project? I'd love to, yeah. So it's a plant database and it's really focused on Portugal, but it's absolutely applicable to the Mediterranean basin as a whole. So the Mediterranean part of Southern Europe, but also to the Mediterranean type climate regions like central Chile, Southwest Australia, South Australia, California, and uh, Eastern, uh, Western South Africa. So it's essentially a database for anyone interested in 
landscape, anyone interested in plants. But specifically, it's focused on three different themes. It's, as let's say, a resource for landscape architects. It's a resource for regenerative agriculture. And it's also a resource for ecological restoration. And it tries to marry these three, let's say, fields and creates um, a database with filters where you can type in and work with 23 data points and then layer up all those filters together to give you very specific planting lists for your exact location. Because you know, I went to study, I studied landscape architecture actually in an, in an art school. It's a art school in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh College of Art. Um, and they're part of Edinburgh University. And they, they really hybridize your <clears throat> landscape design studies with art and ecology. Mm. So it's a, it's a, you know, we did painting, printing, sculpture, metalworking, all of these things together with classic landscape architecture and also studying at the Royal Botanical Gardens. So what a brilliant combination. It's, it's very good. It's very sort of conceptual. It's all, um, I mean, you kind of have to teach yourself in a way. It's very hands off, mm -hmm. but I like that. And that then gave me also this, um, approach where sense of place this sort of idea of genus loci how do how do landscapes exhibit this these unique set of characteristics that give give them uh you know a very sort of specific set of characteristics that you know in the mind when you go there you can really identify these places as being to that place as a unique character right and that also feeds into the planting um, the species that make up that landscape when you're approaching the, the, the design for the projects you have a property you want to work on it's very difficult to understand the native vegetation and it's you know it's, a, it's a quite overwhelming because it's so specific to that place and the database tries to allow you to, to better understand that so that's part of it so what my hope is that when people do use this tool they're creating very site-specific planting schemes that are uh, characteristic of that very specific location rather than, I suppose, the opposite would be you go to someone's landscape project, whether it's a farm or whether it's a park or private garden or whatever, and you start to see the same species you saw in the last place. And it's like a little bit of a cookie cutter and everything kind of repeats itself. And I think the beauty of landscape is through the hands of a designer is to allow that landscape to express its own character, to mm -hmm. sort of reveal that, you know, and that gives the place its identity, but it's also applicable to agriculture because you can really work with uh, local plant species, varieties, phenotypes that are specific to that region and then create a system that is resilient, but also, um, what I, I also feel very passionate about is cultural landscapes because you know in order to have a regenerative system we need to take ownership of the landscape we need to feel like that landscape is ours so we have a responsibility towards it and a sort of deep uh, respect to look after it and I think that also comes from having this sense of unique character you know it's like gives you that sense of like this is our place and we want to you know look after it for the better yeah, and I really have appreciated your approach to this with 
a start of research and survey and deep understanding of the place in order to understand that unique character before then going on into the design process. And exactly. I've learned this in kind of a cursory way where you get a lot of the data points. And I mean, perhaps to others, it would be very thorough. It's definitely more thorough than the average where people get to the conclusion of putting whatever, you know, hot species is in the, the nurseries these days, right? Or just thinking only about some of the aesthetics or the, the species that they recognize. But I was really opened up to a new world of understanding not only the members of a plant community, but the relationships between them, as well as other elements within that ecology, the microclimate, the soil conditions, the access to water, when we were doing this project together. So yes. maybe you can talk about your process of uncovering and understanding the unique aspects of a biome, of an ecology, before then moving on into design steps. That's, yeah, that's a, such a fascinating um, aspect of, of design. And the, your classical design process, I suppose you study it yourself or you learn it in architecture school and you follow the creative design process. It's fairly uh, well-developed. And that's like, let's say the Royal British Architects Institute uh, process, set, set of protocols. But when you, um, when, you know, when you want to take yourself in your own direction with your own work, um, what I've developed is a, like a, a very sort of systematic framework to layer on top of that in order to approach projects here in the Mediterranean. And that is essentially using uh, potential natural vegetation as a framework for landscape architecture. Mm -hmm. And potential natural vegetation is simply a model um, that represents in a given area, let's say continental Portugal, the potential vegetation communities that would exist if, let's say, the landscape was just left to its own devices and it's representative of a combination of climatic and edaphic and um, ecological connections that would create, like, a, let's say, a mosaic, natural mosaic of different communities. So you have that model and you can see specific parts that say of Portugal is, oh, it's this, um, it's called a sigmetum. It's essentially the highest order of the vegetation community. And that gives you um, an idea of what the landscape could be. Let's say you have a brownfield site where it's just, you know, an empty field and there's nothing there. It's an abandoned um, landscape, uh, like, a, let's say a tabula rasa, completely clear, clear site and nothing yeah, there. Until the death, whatever, yeah. Yeah, and of course, uh, the first part of understanding a landscape is to, to, let's say, become an archaeologist and reveal the layers of the landscape. So you're thinking of it as a metaphor similar to what a palimpsest is, which is a parchment or a clay tablet they used to have in medieval Europe or in ancient Babylon or in Greece, where they would write on this tablet. And then due to reasons of economy, they would sort of scrape off the text and then rewrite it. But now you can look at it and it's got 20, 10, 20, 30, 30 layers of text underneath. And if you look through a scanning microscope, you can actually learn a lot of information about the ancient Greeks and so forth by understanding these various hidden layers that are just wow. e e echoed and like shadows of the former, former tech body text. And that, that, that's very similar with landscapes. So the starting point is to really just unravel the hidden layers below the surface to 
give you a sense of what was there previously, how was the land managed in the past. And it's also not necessarily literally underneath. It can also become from historic archive images, archive surveys, anecdotal evidence or local local texts from the town hall that reveal certain things. And you layer all of that up. So that's the, really the starting point of understanding the cultural landscape, because in Europe, all landscapes are anthropogenic. So everything's essentially a managed garden. Yeah. And there's been human occupation on every location. So there's always going to be that um, previous history, let's say. So you've from got, what I can tell, it's been very well recorded as well. In most places, it's, it's yeah, it's fairly or easy it, to find out know, this information. It's been recorded in a lot of other places too, but due to colonialism and a lot of disturbance, we have lost those records. They're fairly intact in a lot of places in Europe still. Yeah, you do have the local parish churches and town halls, which do have fairly extensive records of this stuff. And yeah. it's continuous and it is, it's all in the public domain, so you can access it, which is great. And, you know, going back to the idea of this sort of brownfield site, this blank land, you've got that sort of cultural understanding. And then on top of that, you can really just start to work with this potential natural vegetation model, the PNV model and give you like a sense of let's let's say a good example people might know in portugal you have somewhere called the montado yeah. it's uh, synonymous uh, with the deheza in spain it's a uh, cork and holmoak uh, managed savanna essentially for yeah. um, the cultivation of livestock specifically pigs but also some arable and uh, forestry and that is um it's a fascinating landscape but it's not homogenous from an ecological perspective. It's not monolithic. If you look at the PNV model, it's actually many things. It's many different ecological or vegetation communities or sigmatums. And this is all to do really with the underlying geology. So it gives a different soil pH or it gives a different soil texture when the material weathers and goes into, like the rock goes into a second phase and becomes, let's say, clay. You know, you get these micro varieties all across the montado it's incredibly diverse actually mm -hmm. so it's, it's really i think it's really useful to have uh going into a designer framework which can give you some structure so you're not um always like scrambling in the dark let's say and trying to figure it out on the fly i think um it can be really helpful to give yourself some sort of framework to work towards and i feel very passionate about ecology and plants. So that's my, that's my personal direction, but it's certainly not the only direction you can take your design approach. And there's there's many ways to do it. That's just my Absolutely. personal approach, you know? Well, look, before we jump to the other steps here, I would love to know your process and what you're looking for when you do these studies that you just mentioned, when you're looking into the archaeological layers that give you insights into previous land management, both on the ground and in the records that you mentioned. Yes, yeah, so a good place to start is, of course, Google Earth, and then you can just uh, go back in time with the, that's a really the aerial photos. Yeah, and that's so, it's, it's, yeah, it's free, it's downloaded in five seconds, and it's really easy to use. So for anybody listening, I, I think that's, that's the number one place to start. And they do have pretty extensive uh, records going back at least 15 to 20 years. In some places, it's obviously variable. But that will give you really good indications of what was grown there in the past or what kind of vegetation type was there. And it also, it's quite interesting because if you flick back and you go back to certain times, 
the photos are not always taken at the same time of year. So sometimes yeah. you can, let's say, go back to 2009 and then it's like a winter uh, photograph, yeah. aerial photograph, and then you can see erosion channels in the photograph from like a heavy rain perhaps a week earlier and then you can see the actual hydrological distribution and the way that water flows across your property mm -hmm. but when you're there you when you when you go to the place in person you never see it and when you look at the other or let's say the current aerial photo in google earth it's not there because the vegetation has grown back but yeah. understanding hydrology of course is is really the, the starting point to to any design in the mediterranean and you can glimpse that sometimes in Google Earth. So it's a really, really good hack to just get well, an understanding that, of that. I did that from my place. Um, that's how I really got to understand how much erosion happened of this big flooding event in 2020 that is uh, one of the principal shapers of the land in the last mm, 50, 60 years. Because through the Catalan Geological Society, I was able to get some aerial photos, the first ever aerial photos in 1945 done by the US military as they were surveying Europe for World War II or after, just after World War II. And since then, although it's not continuous, I've gotten you know usually at least one every 20 years until the 2000s where it does become continuous and seeing where or how the river has changed and moved how the vegetation communities have both been uh, harvested and replanted in different configurations. And then, like I said, most recently, that erosion from the river and the massive flood event. And, mm. you know, about those aerial images, though I do have stories from neighbors, it connects on a whole different level and you see the impact on the land through images like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really helpful. And mm. it doesn't cost you anything. I think that's... You know, so it's it's a it's, there's no barrier to access. Um, a lot of these GIS programs, and I work a lot in AutoCAD, and it's you know you have to pay an annual subscription fee, and uh, it's it's not free. So I think having let's say you're starting a project, having that that resource available, it's great, and everyone everyone should adopt it. <laughs> but there's there's other uh, there's other resources as well. I mean, you can go to the in Portugal the, the town hall and the the parish, it's called Fregazea in Portuguese. It's got records, historical maps. Funnily enough, most of them are hand-drawn, and it's really nice. So you see a little quirks in the drawings as well, where they highlight certain things the landowner knows specifically only to him, and he'll mark that. So you can really study the historical uh, maps, and it has all the cadastros and all of the hydrology there and the, the access ways, and um, that's, a, that's a really good good place to start but there's also more general resources like in portugal we have a fantastic website a really great resource run by the portuguese botanical society called flora.on and it actually has every recorded plant species in portugal mapped um, in in cells in quadrats um all across portugal and it gives you so much information it gives you like the um, the clade, the order, the family, the genus, uh, species, subspecies, varieties. It also gives you the, all the flowering times of every plant. Um, and it gives you um, a little bit sometimes of the sort of edaphic conditions of the, what the plant might want to grow in. Mm. And it gives That's you also like, yeah. is it vulnerable? Is it critically endangered? Is it near threatened? It gives you that information mm. as well. And this is um, an amazing resource. And I don't know... If any other EU country that has such a detailed database for that 
it doesn't give you much more information than that. It just shows you like a 10 by 10 uh, kilometer square quadrat. And it's like a red, there's a red square there. It, that plant will be somewhere <laughs> in that 100 square kilometers, you know? Yeah. But there's other, also on like a global scale, there's the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, um, GBIP. And that actually has like a hexagonal representation of every plant we know of in a spatial format. So mapped out spatially across the world. So you can actually see regional trends uh, with species. So like oh. how they how they actually, you know, what spatial area they occupy over the, over a global scale. So th these these resources are really nice to use. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything is uh, more important than just going going to the landscape and sitting down, closing your eyes and just <laughs> experiencing the character of it and how it feels to be there and then poking around with a spade and observing what plants are already there and what, how the soil is and how the seasons change and how the, the from a, like a diurnal cycle, how the, how the space feels. I think that's really the, so the best way to understand that. Well, talk to me a little about your perspective of going onto a landscape, what you're looking for, what tools you bring, how you look for signs on the place. Because I had the pleasure of going and seeing the site that we were designing together in the Laguna de Albufeira. I think I pronounced that right. <laughs> and did that was an absolute joy because we couldn't take two steps anywhere without you pointing out all of the different plants that you recognize, the Latin names, the uses for them, where they grow. Like it was like walking around with the with a plant dictionary. <laughs> yeah, a kid in a candy store. <laughs> um, I, I would actually say you don't need anything. Um, I would suggest um, bringing a notepad and a, a pencil or a pen and you know recording what you find. Um, if you're interested in finding out the soil, then a, a, shot, a spade or a trowel at least would be useful. Um, but I, I think you, know, you can do this really minimally. Um, Having a drone is fantastic. Having a drone that has some LIDAR capabilities or, you know, scanning capabilities, amazing. You know, you can do really great surveys um, of your land using that. But you, you, don't, you don't necessarily need it. You can, you know, pay for a surveyor to do the topographical survey and you can then just observe. And of course, you can put a, put a quadrat down, um, like a sort of, net with a wooden frame or so forth and you can count in your 10 by 10 centimeter squares like the numbers of plants but i think it's it, it's better just to go there and um, try to identify the plants and try to learn uh, what they are on your land and I, I i do this because i can identify plant families so i can see the sort of universal characteristics across families so i go to a place and then i know it's okay i know it's amaranthiaceae i know it's an amaranth so then I can go back to do the desktop study and figure out which amaranth is that, because I know it's an amaranth due to its morphological distinctions. And then I can say, okay, cool. I have a list of, let's say 40 species instead of 4 million, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that really, that, that really helps. Um, so that's, that's where I start from. But uh, for anyone interested, it's really just um, understanding plant families and the characteristics between them, you know, so you can identify a wild, a wild garlic or you can identify a wild daisy or anything in the daisy family i think these characteristics are a great place to start um and then go to personally i go to then um 
I find a study from usually from either the University of Lisbon's Agricultural School or the University of Everett, and they have detailed um, studies showing the potential natural vegetation in something called synthetic tables. And these give you what's called a releve, where they essentially draw a line through the landscape, they walk down that line, and they record everything on it. And then they characterize those plants into um, bioindicators. So these plants are, they have to be there. You know, let's say Erica australis, that has to be there. The, that, that plant has to be there, otherwise it's not that vegetation community. So these bioindicators are, it's just a few per, per like community, right? So two or three. And then you have characteristic species, which are far more extensive and will normally be there, but not necessarily. And then below that, you have companions. So they might just pop up here and there. So you have these three different categories. Um, so understanding the prevalence of a specific species and it's uh, like how much it grows in a certain area is, is I suppose, how you would define it. So how um, numerous is it, I suppose you would say. Yeah. And I was first introduced to this process through Mark Shepard's work in restoration agriculture, as he talks about identifying the dominant plant communities in your area as an informant to what is likely to thrive when it comes to selecting cultivars for a farm, for any kind of production unit, and also getting insights as to what animals may be sort of analogous to the wild animal communities that would thrive yes. in that area right that would have the Her heritage breeds thrive. yeah yeah that's going back to the logo darba feira project so bringing bringing that conversation full circle um during my research for that project i came across a plant uh, in the heather family it's an erica it's called crema album uh, portuguese crowberry um which people believe should be renamed as beachberry because it's very much limited to growing on the beach and it sounds it sounds a bit sexier than portuguese crowberry because <laughs> the, the fruit is really interesting it's completely spherical it looks like a white transparent blueberry a wow. little bit a little bit smaller than the, the cultivated blueberries like especially like the high bush blueberries are quite large sometimes depending on the variety but um a wild blueberry it's about the same size and it's I'm not joking. It's identical in taste wow. to a really good blueberry. Talking about it, but I've still never come across one. The it grows. It's endemic to Portugal, so it only grows in Portugal. There's one small population in, near Cadiz in Spain, but other than that, the entire global population of this shrub is only growing in Portugal. It's just basically a, a narrow endemic, limited to uh, one one or two kilometers from the coast. Um, on the Atlantic side and the South Coast as well. And I spent maybe a year looking for this, this, this bush when it was fruiting. I found it and it was never fruiting. And eventually I, I got there and there was this location uh, south of Lisbon um, in the Setubal Peninsula where I found it. And I ate it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden my tooth uh, crunched on the seed <laughs> and it's absolutely rock hard this little <laughs> seed um it's very hard i was like oh my god please don't tell me i've chipped my tooth i was fine i was fine but i was like okay well this is something i think for this little project would be a fantastic species to domesticate 
to start a breeding program and actually bring this online because there's so much marketability there. It's incredibly high in uh, antioxidants, phytonutrients. It's completely drought tolerant. Mm. So it requires very little water. It's evergreen, so it looks nice throughout the year. And the white berries also look really, really interesting and fun. Um, It's great for wildlife. A lot of birds eat the seeds. And it has a history of, of, of consumption. They found when they were excavating a building site in central Lisbon, where the old Roman city used to be, um, they found a basement. And in the basement, there was um, evidence of fig seeds. There was evidence of uh, acorns from oaks. And then there was crowberry seeds. In a you know, t- 2,100 year old site, someone had been foraging these crowberries on the coast and brought them to Lisbon and sold them to some middle class craftsman or merchant in the city. And they'd obviously discarded it in their uh, waste and it's been there preserved. So it has a history of consumption, but um, not of domestication. So we looked into it and found this um, scientific paper authored by a professor at the University of Lisbon, like essentially laying out the roadmap to domestication for this plant. So that then gave us the confidence to say, okay, well, we can integrate this species into the site because it was right next to the coast, uh, 500 kilometers, 500 meters from one of these populations of wild crowberries. So it's, it's about saying, okay, what's the potential natural vegetation and what species can we try to use on this property that represent that and essentially offer an ecological service along with the product you know so it's it's that and then also thinking about when you have cultivars they are mostly clones of themselves so it's also about preserving genetic diversity and having a wider expression of phenotypes within the plant so it has uh, future resilience to pests and diseases and climate change. This is really critical, I think, going forward. I know that you're, you know, of course, a huge fan of perennial edibles, and I think that's so important. And I also think the genetic preservation of the phenotypes is also really important. And people perhaps don't think about that too much when they're cultivating plants, especially perennials, that they're cuttings and they're clones of other plants, one, one parent. And have often very weak genetic diversity and resistance. Or even if they are seeds, they've been bred into a genetic, uh, what would you call it, like a cul-de-sac, basically, where all it can do is turn around and can't go forward. (laughs) I love love that expression, cul-de-sac. Yeah, exactly that. There's no way out. (laughs) They mostly prefer to it as, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's, there's, there's still many wild plants out there that we can domesticate cultivate and are absolutely delicious and super healthy for you so yeah that was the focus of that project on the god was try to so first of all rename it the beach berry <laughs> so people would uh, buy it <laughs> we can switch from rapeseed to canola i think we can go from crowberry to beach berry That's I, think, I think so i think so <laughs> i feel fairly confident about that yeah yeah. Well, I love that illustration. That was definitely one of the more interesting ones that we explored during that project. But we did this for everything. You like this is really where I was blown away by your process because of your knowledge of plants and the different communities that they go along with in the area of, of all of Portugal and the Mediterranean. You were able to offer us insights by doing a survey of what would likely thrive and is already present on the site. It's a 50 hectare site. 
I guess we need to give a little bit of background information on this before I go. Uh, yeah, go for it. So, yeah, so we were we were brought this project by Juan Pablo, and he was helping to represent a company that was looking at the feasibility of investing in this land, of uh, its potential to produce high-value crops, uh, be a demonstration site for regenerative production in this unique area of uh, this Laguna, which is about an hour south of Lisbon. Is that about right? Even closer? Yeah, about, about 45 minutes. Yeah, 50 yeah. minutes. And because of the unique ecology there, there were opportunities to try cultivars, both perennial and annual, that would be difficult to cultivate in other areas because, as in the description of Laguna, it was a laguna of seawater that incurred into the, the, the mainland a little bit and created this little pocket of, of biodiversity that, again, opened up a lot of options. And because of your understanding of the plant communities there, you were able to identify the wild plants that were already thriving there and the knowledge of what else was in that family to basically do a survey of what profitable cultivars would thrive there with right. very little maintenance and the communities of others that it would support for the development into later successional stages from its current state of being pretty degraded. Is that a good yeah. summary of what we were doing? Absolutely. That was, that was it in a nutshell. That's what we were, that's what we were trying to do. Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, I understood a little of the plant communities that we were looking at further inland, but I had no idea of all of the options of very nutritionist, or nutritionist, <laughs> nutrition rich and, and valuable kind of lesser known species that grow so close to the coast. Most people think of because of the salt in the sand and the fact that there's not much organic matter in those soils, there's very little options for cultivars. But maybe you can refresh my memory of some of the ideas that came up in that area. Right. Yeah. So uh, just sort of as an overview, um, the Mediterranean has a very specific climate where you have this uh, summer drought between, it varies between location within the Mediterranean, but let's say somewhere between uh, two months and six months, there is no rain over summer and that um, it's a very harsh routine for a plant to survive. So what they do is they produce their own sunscreen, uh, which we know as antioxidants. Essentially, they're just secondary metabolites or polyphenols that absorb, they have an SPF factor. So they absorb the ultraviolet radiation and prevent the cells from being damaged through radiation, through solar radiation. And so they don't get, they don't, you know, get cell damage. And those, uh, Chemicals are obviously fantastic for our bodies, but we don't actually consume them. They feed our gut microflora, so the bacteria in our gut, they eat that. And then they produce serotonin and various other hormones, but also um, especially a lot to do with like your immune system, right? So having these wild or semi-wild cultivars or even just cultivated plants that are high in antioxidants is just a really nice... Uh, you know, like nutrient dense food is, is obviously, you know, really a big thing now. And that's that's one way to sort of look at it from a culinary perspective. But for an overview of this property, uh, which I'll tie that little conversation into, it's a river valley, 50 hectares. There's a temporary Mediterranean water course that runs through the middle of it. And it's fairly flat. And then there's a sort of embankments on either side, which are um sand dunes from i think the pleistocene 
period epoch uh they were windblown off the ocean for you know twenty thousand years and built up there and then you have this flat flat sort of meadow area in the middle but when you move towards the north of the property you actually encounter this beautiful lagoon it's a brackish lagoon it's a one of the main locations for flamingos nesting sites on their way out north uh, from Africa. So it's, it's really beautifully preserved. There's uh, huge reed beds and willow forests and everything. But the lagoon is very close to the northern corner of the property. And we were looking at, it's like, okay, well, where's our starting point? And I, I thought, okay, well, if you think about it's going to be sea level rise in the future from climate change, then you're going to get saline incursion coming into the subsoil from the lagoon. So groundwater is going to be saturated with salts. So we propose to have this uh, essentially sea vegetable agroforestry system on the northern yeah. part of the property. And that really helped to start the process off and define what that could be, you know. And it, we had all sorts of proposals, all, all perennials like glass warts and everything else, uh, which is um, samphire. That's very popular vegetable in, in, in restaurants with, along with the uh, fish grilled fish you know those kind of crops would grow quite happily there and you know let's say commercializing that in an agroforestry system uh is is great because there's a market in portugal because portugal is actually the world's third largest consumer of seafood i believe in the world mm. it's uh japan of course i think iceland and then portugal wow. so there's a huge market for uh, sea vegetables as well mm. um and that was uh, that was like the starting point. And then, of course, you have the water course that runs through the middle of the property, and that's like a spine. So there was the proposal to create something called beaver dam analogs, where you, you sort of recreate through partial damming of the water course, you raise the level and you reconnect the floodplain with the channel because yep. it was very incised and people had been neglecting, straightening it and neglecting it. So the channel had become deeper and deeper. And we really wanted to return that relationship between the floodplain and the, the stream bed. And along there would be um, like, like a riparian gallery of uh, white willow um, and black alder. And then uh, a slightly higher ground would be like white poplar, like a white poplar gallery, because it, that's not a hydrophyte that doesn't like to have completely oxygen, anoxic conditions, anaerobic conditions. So we had that sort of idea. And then beyond that, it was really just, okay, well, we have this really fertile, flat, alluvial agricultural land why don't we just do like a mulberry a black mulberry morris negra system because it's a mediterranean native and to be honest i prefer the taste yeah. i prefer the taste of the red black mulberry really to the white one for the animals and yeah it's yeah, it's got the highest food. yeah it's got the highest dry matter nutrient content of any perennial for forage for yeah. for, 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 for ruminants it has the the most digestibility, the highest nutrient content, highest amount of or best balance of car carbs, protein and fats. So, you know, creating a, a dry season water bank where you can have you can lop off all the, the, the black mulberry and feed that to, let's say, a sheep that's holistically grazed and rotated through these meadows. Gives you the fertility and, you know, coppicing these mulberries also then increases soil carbon sequestration by root sheathing. And then uh, you've got shade. So you've know, got a place for the livestock to be during midday, but you've also got a cooling of the surface. So, you, you know, you're doing all these ecosystem services. 
but everything is somehow linked to an ecological condition within the property. So it's, it's very much intimately linked. And then as you move to the, to the let's say, edges, in, in, in landscapes, edges are perhaps the most important condition you have to look at. So how does one place, one space, one property, one habitat interact with another? And that's something called an ecotone. And it's, let's say, a little bit of a hybrid of the two habitats coming together, but it's usually linear. It's usually like a long line, right? It's a very narrow long line. That's the exciting point. That's where you get speciation. That's where you get evolution. That's where different plants evolve to become different species. And there's an interaction between uh, animals because, you know, you're moving from, let's say, a forest where they live to a meadow where they're hunting. So you have that sort of, and that was really important part of the, the, the project where we had this very, very very biodiverse polyculture, agroforestry, essentially like a food forest that was like a linear belt that ran around the property. And then that transitioned into maritime pines, which were existing. And that's, you know, I wouldn't say it's an, it's an, it's a, um, no one's really sure if that's a native or not. Um, mm. but, you know, it's naturalized and it's certainly, it's certainly native to Portugal, somewhere in the north perhaps, but it's ex extensively planted second only to eucalyptus here. So we want, but we wanted to respect that, you know, and it's also about respecting things within the landscape and integrating them into the project and having that balance between new things and old things or existing and proposed. But that's the, the yeah, that's the overview of the design, um, more or less. Yeah, I know I learned so much from that, not only from your process, but through the analysis of the, um, the economic potential of these lesser known cultivars and finding a niche market. I think there's huge potential there um, for much like you said at the beginning, rediscovering the cultural and the unique aspects of any given site for the potentiation of different culinary aspects, uh, ecosystem services and everything that comes along with it, including even the culture of people's relationship to that landscape, because there's an inevitable reconnection to perhaps old or lost practices of caring for these cultivars that are not as common anymore. And quite frankly, they're worth more because it's a shame that we have picked about seven different cultivars to basically uh, mm. cover the world with. And whether or not they're appropriate for the places that they're planted in, there's a massive market and a demand for it. So people do it and it's easy, right? But this is where we run into the problems of landscape degradation and everything that is the knock-on effect from that, right? The loss of nutrients in our diets, the loss of cultural connection to stewardship of the land in the way that people have, have done so previously. And this approach to designing a farm seems to connect all of these missing pieces. And it's just a matter of unfolding and managing it through its maturation over time. It was so inspiring and exciting to be working on this. And we got to go a lot deeper than even other things similar to this that I had practiced on, on previous projects. It's really a shame that they didn't pick it up because in the end, they didn't make the yeah. And they the didn't get the, yeah, the, exactly. The stakeholders didn't get the funding in the end. So they yeah, just, uh, they had the feasibility study essentially from us, but yeah. well, it was, it was a unique place. And I also feel like maybe um, I can give one other brief example because that was such a specific place. 
Yes, it was. Uh, it's maybe not like scalable in that sense. The approach is scalable, but the specific peculiarities of that place were, were unique to that location. Oh, but... Maybe give us one that might be more relatable. Yeah, so uh, we briefly mentioned before we came on today about um, my, my partner and I, we are um, looking to purchase some land in Alentejo in south south central Portugal. Uh, the owner's already accepted our offer, but by law, we just have to get, wait for the lawyers to contact the neighboring owners to see if they want to buy it first at the offer we agreed with. Um, so it's not not secure, but that essentially that uh, I don't want to give away too much of this project, but it's going to be my personal project of developing a, essentially an ecological slash botanical garden for thermo Mediterranean areas. And it's a unique place. It's it's like a, a the rock is actually like um, seabed that was lifted up millions of years ago and formed like alkali basalts. So it's really rare geology and it has very unique mineral composition. But it, essentially, in a nutshell. Um, it's sub-step slash montado. So one of the proposals, just like off the top of my head, I was like, oh, cool. It's probably like a Quercus rotundifolia, the holm oak, myrtle, myrtus communis, and Pyrus bourgeoniae, the Iberian pear. Why don't you combine that into a system where the holm oak gives you, these are all the potential natural vegetation for that specific location. Why don't you combine it into a system where the holm oak produces acorns to rear pigs, the common myrtle gives you essential oil, and then the Iberian pear also feeds the pig during the summer, and then they can move on to the acorns in autumn. And they're all native to the location, but you're getting like a full annual cycle, nutrient cycling and uh, ecosystem services from that, but you're not sacrificing productivity. Yeah, yeah. Very you're actually getting How multiple, again? Uh, 21 hectares. So. So medium medium sized place, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty chunky property. It's uh, in includes uh, a mountain. We would we would essentially be purchasing a, the tallest point in that part of Alentejo, which is a three hundred meter peak. So you can almost see the ocean from there, even though it's nowhere wow. near the ocean. So it's a pretty exciting place, and it's a uh, the most biodiverse part of Alentejo. This little area of alkali basalt outcroppings it has an insane number of aromatic perennials just growing wild like there's rosemary everywhere but there's many many other species but also has incredible that biodiversity of, of geophytes so bulbs uh rhizome corn tuber plants they're everywhere in spring they come up because they can survive the drought there really well of course their perenniating buds are below ground so they don't get affected by the hot summers so they could they are just everywhere we went in springtime and it was just insane it's like all bulb bulb uh, parade, but that would be focused on becoming an edu educational institution for better understanding uh, land management pra best practice land management for the Medi in a Mediterranean context. I think that you know that'd be a really exciting project to do there. Uh, uh, due to the the, it's like a let's say an archetype for the Montado, which is this very large agroforestry system, uh, maybe the most sustainable agricultural system in the world you know arguably and then you or have this that region yeah yeah it's certainly certainly one of them and then you have this uh let's say hotspot of biodiversity within the montado it's like how do you marry these this uh commercial production with ecological re restoration or conservation yeah and then you're looking at all the wild plants that grow there like rampion and everything else and trying to integrate that in also you know um black salsify or scorzonera it's this root vegetable I've definitely heard of it. I can't think of it off the top of my head. 
actually delicious. I got it at a farmer's market a couple of years ago in Lisbon. Um, just grilled it with garlic butter and it's super nice. It's a prebiotic. It's full of inulin as well. And um, it's really just growing everywhere on the property. And it's a pretty rare plant in Portugal. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, you know, having, okay, so we take, uh, let's say, a, a cultivar, breed it with the wild one and create like a unique cultivar for the for that property and then that's one of the cash crops you can say of of the place it's like you know we have this amazing scores and we sell or ramp rampion we forage or whatever so yeah anyway i just wanted to <laughs> maybe give a more relatable example that's you know a lot of people can can relate to the montada yeah i love that and much like the other project the selling point is in all of the unique things that you can do that allow you to create your own market for products that either others are not cultivating or are underappreciated in the general population, but have a niche market, let's say with chefs or other people who really value this and how rare it is to get a premium, even though you're not probably going to reach production scale the way most farmers would think about it. And this, I mean, I've definitely seen a few examples where this is by far more profitable for the amount of labor put into it especially because we're talking about plants that already grow with minimal maintenance and uh, amendments to, to the, the conditions. This attitude of not only working with the existing vegetation and the communities that are already there, but continuing to breed for adaptation to the changes that are inevitably going to happen so that you stay a couple of steps ahead and can save on all of the work maintenance and inputs that would otherwise be required to adjust the conditions to something that's more delicate or less adapted yeah. to the place yeah exactly exactly and that's that's actually interesting enough that's currently a conversation i'm having with one, one of my clients from my my design practice my landscape architecture practice here in, in lisbon uh, they they have they're doing they have this beautiful ten hectare property south of Lisbon in Grandola. It's these low hills off the Atlantic, and uh, she, she one of the the, the other the client um, she really wants to have integrated production of essential oils, and she was obviously saying, oh, I'd love sage, love lavender, love rosemary, but uh, I was like, well, why don't we also integrate all of these uh, native plants from your forest because they have this beautiful mountain full of cork and myrtle and viburnum and there's there's so much growing there there's just wild oregano everywhere so like how do you, you know, integrate that into your essential oil production as well and create a system out of that way where it's a going to be a hotel so you know you can engage the clients visiting with the actual landscape itself so you understand <laughs> fork for farm to fork or um, whatever, it's that process, but all for essential oils. So they can really see like, they're not just, the seeds are not just imported from Turkey or something. It's like they're, you're collecting the seeds on, on the spot and rep it's essentially representing that locality and creating cultivars that are, let's say, marketable for your region as well. Like if you want to sell the seeds or give the seeds away, you can, you can do that. And you know that your friend or your customer will be able to just grow them easily. That's the mm -hmm. best part about it. Absolutely. And it sounds radical when compared to the predominant cultivation and farming model that we have at the moment, but this is exactly how it was always done 
not that long ago. We're talking maybe 100, 150 years ago for the most part. And yeah. this is really what created the unique and exciting aspects of traveling to a new place. Instead of just seeing the same restaurants and the same cultivars of tomatoes across every continent that you visit, I can vouch for that because I've traveled quite a bit. It's depressing to have lost so much of this unique, not only flavor, but nutrition and the, cu the cultures that uh, interacted with them and that had festivals around their harvests and uh, traditions of cooking these recipes from what was found, what was easily yeah. you know, grown in this area, as well as the wildlife that lived off of it. And not only does it create uh, an ecology that is more, uh, or sorry, a culture that is more adapted to the ecology that it lives within, but it is much more resilient it is much more interesting, certainly from an outside perspective. And to me, it's the only inspiring part of a future vision for regenerative agriculture that I feel does not get talked about enough, right? We very easily get caught up in the conversation about how to improve soil health so that we can optimize these cultivars that quite frankly are not adapted to the place that we're trying to force them into. So yes, you can put in all of the effort to improve the soil so you can grow corn in this place that it was never adapted to do so. And, you know, there is something to be said for doing land race breeding so that those are, are easier to, to cultivate in that area. But we could also rediscover what used to be grown there and the cultures that, that were formed around that. To me, it's much more of an inspiring vision than just improving the ecological health with the same mindset of producing what the massive system is trying to consume yes. in the first place. And you can definitely, exactly, and you can take that uh, approach and say, well, instead of having a monoculture of corn, um, you know, you can really say, okay, well, I integrate, um, you know, native plants in, in strips, like it's very commonly done as hedgerows or whatever, and then you can have the corn in between and have this sort of barcode system. And that's like a, you know, that, that's, that's a compromise, I suppose. And that's, I suppose, it's the starting, yes starting point, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because not only is it still necessary to uh, feed the system as it is, like we can't just do a 180 turn all at once, but this would be a transitional mechanism to continuing with an existing enterprise that perhaps you have a lot of sunk cost into the machinery to do it. I mean, you have to pay back yeah, those exactly. loans. I totally understand it from a pragmatic perspective, but you can start to integrate these other cultivars and transition the ecosystem towards something that is essentially independent of the need mm -hmm. for these inputs and so much of the maintenance and the cost that we've yeah. gotten used to. Yeah. Well, in the same time, developing the markets, perhaps they don't exist yet, but you can do this in a timeline that is reasonable to start to introduce them, find buyers, educate consumers, because it's unlikely yeah. you're going to be able to do that all at once, right? Exactly. And it, it, yeah, like you said, it's all about balancing inputs with profit. And if your inputs are non-existent, non if your inputs are close to zero, then you're really free to experiment or more free to experiment. And when your, uh, your margins are much tighter and your inputs are high, you're less likely to experiment because you simply don't have the luxury of doing so. So I think uh, taking really simple approaches like 
studying or learning about the research from Dr. Christine Jones from Australia, where she's the leading expert on uh, soil restoration in Australia and works a lot in the Mediterranean part, the, the Mali and uh, Southern Australia regions, where she's really just saying to farmers, you know, like transition to grazing, don't leave your fields fallow over summer and then use this uh, very diverse seed mix for your, your, your uh, permanent pastures, you know, your improved pastures. Um, and it doesn't matter, even if they're, let's say, Mediterranean plants, you know, there's chicory, plantain, and various other perennial herbs, it's still better than what they're doing currently, because yeah. they're providing synergy, right? So all the different plant families have specific bacteria that colonize their rhizosphere and their roots, as well as fungi. And they, the more speech, the more family diversity you have, the more different groups of bacteria you have. So then the soil self improves through that, through that method, right? You are doing a one-off purchase of seeds and then you're creating a permanent perennial pasture that self seeds itself every, every season. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so low cost really. Um, but, and of course, a lot of people are heading in that direction, which is fantastic. And with that perspective of making that transition and starting a new trajectory towards a stable, resilient, and perennial ecosystem, kind of brings me back to what we touched on a little earlier, which is successional plant communities. They go through a natural succession based on the conditions that you currently find them in and what the state of equilibrium it's trying to balance itself out at uh, towards later stages of maturity. How do you consider that in your design thinking and as well as consider the maintenance that is necessary uh, as the, the system starts to mature and reach uh, a different state of evolution over time? Um, that's a great question. It's really specific to every place, but um, there's two, I think there's two starting points for that. Well, one would be the hydrology. And the other one would be the level of anthropogenic disturbance that the previous stewards of the land had incurred. Um, that will give you a sense of the carrying capacity and the net primary productivity potential of the land. So it's really fun when you work on a project uh, to imagine it being this climax successional state eventually, right? Where you have these huge oak trees or whatever. But often the potential for that soil can no longer sustain that uh, seral stage, that, that climat climatic vegetation community. So it would become what's known as a geo-series, where even though it has the right climate, the right rainfall, and so on and so forth, there's like an edaphic limiting factor where the soils might have an excess of uh, a mineral, you know, like aluminium or something, yeah. or magnesium, which actually creates like, let's say, a scrubland surrounded by a forest. So you have these little uh, quirks in lithology where it limits the, the, uh, the climax potential, but that's then you have to think about that, let's say, um, from, a, from a cultural perspective, humans are creating that geoseries artificially by changing the mineral uh, profiles of soils, right? So what you, what you cannot model with this potential natural vegetation really on a, on a larger scale is the micro differences between properties. So, so one, one, one landowner could have used 
excessive amounts of um, some nutrient like sulfur, let's say, to bring the pH down. But then that's because everything in the mineral table, everything's opposite each other, right? Copper and zinc and so on and forth, they have like a synergy. So sulfur can interact with other minerals and change the sulfur profile. And you end up creating like a Frankenstein <laughs> plant community. When, when it's abandoned, it turns into this really interesting, uh, you know, in, not uh, in any way representative of a natural system, but there's a beauty in that as well. Yeah. There's, there's a beauty in that as well, because then it creates the grounds for new evolution and new speciation and new interactions between plants. So I, I really do on, on a more sort of, let's say higher level, I really do feel pretty comfortable with human um, manipulation of the landscape. I don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we just rewild everything and leave it alone. I really do think, and this is, this is a, um, a very important thing for the Mediterranean is that the reason there's, there's many reasons why the Mediterranean is biodiverse. Um, it has a unique climate. It's very, the Mediterranean basin is very topographically and geologically diverse. It's the convergence of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, but it's also a glacial refugia where plants were able to survive the ice ages. In little microclimates on the on the south facing slopes over right next to the the mediterranean sea but um you know all of these uh things they sort of like relate to um creating like unique uh, conditions on the side and that is something you can only really study by going there and understanding like how this Mediterranean biodiversity sort of exists at a local scale, it's difficult to map that at any re like meaningful resolution. So yeah, it's it's a that's the fun part is going there and understanding that. But succession in the general sense, I think it comes um, useful when you're trying to model things. So you're trying to let's say do the master plan for your property, and you want to know in rough terms what parts of the property are going to be. Let's say you have uh, ecological corridors, like you know, like a matrix or a riparian corridor, um, or a mosaic or something. Then you know you can sort of model it, and then you can test it. So you can just um, try to grow certain things, very fast-growing herbaceous perennials or annuals, and then see how they do. <laughs> and then you can sort of like through trial and error, you like do do some test plots around the whole property, and you see which species perform well, and then. Does one become invasive? Does it become too dominant? You know, and then okay, let's remove that from the mix and let's replace that with something that maybe a little bit slower growing. And then you can sort of like say, oh, okay, well, then maybe the large trees that might come in thirty years relate to those species that are doing well, those perennial herbaceous perennials uh, that are doing well. So you can work out through, over a couple of years maybe what the because let's say it's. Um, Mm, chicory right it has obviously like a specific condition it likes heavy heavy clay soils um it can tolerate alkalinity it likes compacted soils uh it's mesic or no it's not it's moderately drought tolerant and then it's like surrounded more in like a mesic community where you have continuous water but it can tolerate periods of dryness so that gives you like a sense okay cool well then that's probably going to be uh, Fraxinus angustifolia, the narrow-leaved ash with maybe bay tree or perhaps uh, some willows or some poplars or whatever else. And you can sort of like, if the chicory does well, then you know, right? Because you can't test out a tree. It's going to take 30 years. But you can yeah. test out a small herb 
over two years and then you know okay cool so that that can grow that'll that'll probably be fine to plant ash trees um bay trees or willows or poplars so that that's a little hack you can you can do really this is really interesting for me because i did not study all of this at an academic level i'm really just an enthusiast who is kind of putting myself on an accelerated learning here through the identification of species and also understanding not only successional models, but also correlations between soil types, because we are in a very unique little area of Spain here. A lot of people make assumptions that we have some of the characteristics of what they see in other places, like olive groves and, and figs and, and you know clay soils and then all these other things that are, are often thought of in this area. And we have almost none of that <laughs> because of where we are. Right. The decomposed granitic soils of the mountains of the pre-littoral range in between the Pyrenees and the coastal range and the microclimate that comes along with that and the fact that we're in a riparian corridor because the river runs right through the middle of the property. And so I've had to throw out much of what I learned from where I was living previously to this. And much like you had to do with your education of the northern uh, climates where, where you first studied, completely start over in understanding the ecology of this new place. And, you know, since we're on a similar trajectory, you and I, of working to set up educational facilities and, and centers where we can demonstrate a lot of this and bring people along to this world that we're so passionate about, I'm curious, from a perspective of someone who already has the acad uh, academic learning, how are you thinking of bringing people in who don't have this background and making it accessible so that they can kind of run with it on their own whenever they leave a course or a session that you would host? That's a great, yeah, another great question. Um, and just touching on your, what you mentioned about your property, I would, I, I would definitely have to come and visit it because it does sound pretty unique. And I think I I'll really have here. enjoy, enjoy exploring that before. place, actually. Some good ideas and insights, but there's, like you said, there's nothing like seeing it in person. Yeah, I love how you said you have to throw out um, all these like preconceived uh, notions and then really just say, okay, yeah. this is going to be a unique, unique beast we have yeah, to tackle no from, <laughs> yeah, go back to the start and like, you know, deal, deal with it from your own personal perspective. That's really, well, that's, that's exciting, I suppose. Well, it's good but, because I don't come into it with too many preconceived notions and try exactly. and make uh, conclusions that are really inaccurate. Right. And then you then you become intimately knowledgeable about your land. You you become yeah, the expert exactly of your place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you are the cool. sort of the the owner of that knowledge, which is nice. But um, going back to what you asked about, let's say accessibility. Um, partly, this database that I'm hoping to launch in a website format, either as a downloadable or actually hosted on the website itself as a database. I'm hoping to make that uh, available, um, you know, this year, of course, at some point. And the idea, the thinking behind that, and we touched on this at the beginning of our conversation, was to uh, give landowners the opportunity of creating something specific, site-specific for their properties within the Mediterranean, and really just embracing that crazy level of biodiversity that you have here because that's something that's not really known is the Mediterranean basin is the third most biodiverse place on planet earth for plants after the tropical Andes and the Indonesian rainforest is the Mediterranean basin yeah so it has 25,000 endemic species uh, sorry 16,000 endemic species 25,000 species in total 
that's that's a a lot. It's like four times the biodiversity of the trop uh, Congo rainforest. Mm. Eight times the biodiversity of most of China, apart from Yunnan. So you're looking at crazy levels of endemism and crazy biodiversity. But this the idea of the database is essentially to give people who might be new to farming or ecological restoration or want to design their, their property uh, the opportunity to really just make a meaningful and site-specific design and enhance the biodiversity rather than bringing flora from nurseries that are of very little value you can really offer a service that people can use quite quickly and easily to to like create this list of plants specific to their, their plot um, but also just uh, just you know like talk to your uh, this is just a time tested thing Every, everyone will know this just talk to your neighbors yeah you know? um, that would be my second uh, suggestion because with this property uh, down in Alentasia we're looking at buying um, we actually brought a, a local farm engineer with us and he'd been working there designing uh, uh, citrus uh, farms and various other projects here, you know, around the whole region. So he he immediately confirmed. Like I was like, is that is this Gabro? You know, is this uh, Gabro the the rock? And he's like, yep. <laughs> so I was like, you know, oh uh, cool. Um, I I mean, I'm not a geologist. I can't tell just by like glancing at it. I really need to like research it to to understand it. Yeah. Um, but he just confirmed that straight away. So it's like, okay, well that's two days of research I don't have to do, yeah. you know? And that's that's the nice thing. It's like talking to, to the neighbors will also give you like the options of planning. It's like, oh, well, we'll I have access to a tractor. I'm not going to buy one, but my neighbor, because there was also the farmer, the son of the landowner was a farmer and he, you know, he can obviously lend us the tractor if we, if we and he's like, yeah, of course, we'll, you know, give, give you that. So like making interventions at the beginning or managing your system is a lot more uh, approachable. If you're not having to, you know, put up the upfront costs all at once, yeah, you know, I think so. Those two things, like having a database to understand your ecology, and then also having like local local support in the community, I think these two these two things are great. Uh, I think you can go a long way with that. Yeah. As far as skills or knowledge that can help to shortcut this process uh, or the learning journey itself. What are you excited to teach people who come to, to your place or people who you interact with about how they can start to adopt their responsibility and the stewardship for the places that they are looking at? Definitely go hiking around your local area and understand the different um, landscape types. Understand, you know, the character of your place. So when you come back to your, your property, you have this, this memory, this impression. And I think that can help to inform you going forward with the design. But on a more practical level, I think really just reading, um, studying a little bit about the creative design process. So you have some great approaches, like in permaculture, there's a specific approach that you can take. In landscape architecture, there's a specific approach you can take. So these are great because they remove a lot of the guessing and you can work towards a master plan that is feasible you can actually deliver the master plan and then it's also easier to to construct and implement the, the design so i think getting a foundational knowledge of the creative process uh and you can you've got many choices so you can really there's a lot of flavor there so you can really choose what you like right there's no there's not just one approach 
So you just find what you're interested in and then find the approach that's equivalent. And just, you don't need to be an expert in it, but just understand it's okay to not know something. So it's okay to feel anxious and you're going through the design process and you're like, oh, I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out. My advice would just be to keep going. And it's like a, a cloud or mist. The, the, the truth, the solution will just emerge out of it. And if, if it doesn't, then it, it, that's fine. You just go to like a second iteration of the process and then try to figure out, okay, what, what didn't work and then integrate that into your next iteration. And then having more iterations is always better, right? So you can see the, the, the journey. And if there are elements that you did really well at the very beginning that you can go back to that and say, oh, actually I might take this element and integrate it into the new iteration of the master plan. But not worrying about uh, having unresolved situations within your design process and not worrying about how the master plan might look or, or perform is really just having that sort of faith. But that comes from experience. That comes from practice. Yeah. You know, you don't need to study much for that. You don't need to know anything academic. It's more like stubbornness, <laughs> not giving up. Just keep going yeah. with the master plan. <laughs> Get it to a point where you're knowing it just so well that it's it's like a it's like second nature it's like breathing you can just modify it and modify it to the point where it works and then one day you'll be like oh crap this is uh <laughs> actually function functional i can implement this you know yeah. let's go find some contractors or let's do it myself you know so yeah, yeah i that's, agree that's... i found a lot of assistance in the balance between the gathering of data consulting with neighbors and locals, people with experience in, in the area, and also just the acceptance of the humility that comes with living dynamic systems and the fact that they're not going to do exactly what you want. There's no hope in really controlling them and running a lot of experiments to gain that the experience that then starts to give you more accurate insights and a higher chance of success and just you know, realizing that you're going to continue to make big mistakes throughout the entire journey, but that's not wrong, right? Uh, it was really liberating to me when I started to internalize that. And that mistakes are really only defined by the expectations that you started out with. And it could actually be a success if you could just change your mindset or be more flexible in what you consider a positive outcome, right? Sometimes a positive outcome is just you will learn not to do that again. That's not wrong, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But also that it's not possible for at least an individual and maybe not even a population to understand the complexities of a dynamic living system in its entirety. And that's something that does not end up with the results that you were hoping for that maybe you even needed does not necessarily mean that it's a bad step or it's a setback in the overall health and progression of the system that you're hoping to steward. Something that I still am constantly humbled by, uh, even in these early stages, especially in these early stages of working with my landscape. Mm -hmm. And something that I always try and keep in mind when working with clients too, who don't have this experience, to set realistic expectations and to cultivate a mindset of observation and humility in knowing that you're going to be in the experimental phase for the entire duration of your life and for this project, you know, and just accepting yeah. that and, and having fun with it. Uh, ultimately, like this is a lifestyle. This is a long term process. 
This isn't you come up with a master plan, you implement it, and then things just start going well. I mean, exactly. that's what we would hope for, but it's not realistic. You know, there's course correction, there's learning and observation at every single step of the course. Yeah, you have, you know, phases in, in the master plan. So phase one is uh, <laughs> trial, trial by fire, <laughs> otherwise known as trial by fire. Phase yeah. two is, is phase two is getting your sea legs, and then phase three is just uh, gliding. You know, so mm -hmm. you, you don't implement the whole project um, at once, right? You sort of do a small part, see how that performs, and then course correct for the second phase. And I think that's like a didactic process that works really well. But also, just thinking about a project that you showed me a, a while back, um, I believe it's in Guatemala that you you were involved with. Um, and it was on this sort of like small mountain stream and they had these beautiful oh, yeah, gardens. Oh, the little documentary of it. Yeah, yeah, the one you did the documentary on. And I, yeah. I think at the beginning of the documentary, they said there was something like they had a huge litter or waste problem. Yeah, yeah. In that, in that watershed, watershed. Yeah, um, so trash management was still a big challenge for them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to see like, how far they had come, I'm sure that there was a lot of challenges in engaging and changing people's let's say cultural practices, but also cleaning up the, the, the property and then redesigning the hydrology of that place. It's a, a beautiful project you showed me and what you were talking about reminded me of that. It's uh, That was not built in one day. <laughs> no, by no means, yeah. No way, no way, so. That's multi-generational, full community buy-in and yeah, I'm sure if, if I had had more time, they could have told me about all of the things that didn't work out as they were reaching that. Right that iteration right. and probably how many more things that they would change if they had the time and the resources, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that was a really nice project to showcase that. Yeah. 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 I'll make sure to, to post a link to that in the show notes for this, for, for reference. It's the Kishaya CPEC organization in, um, in the, the mountains of Guatemala <laughs> for having forgotten the name of the county. <laughs> nice. Um, so look, Although this, I think, is a really good place to wrap up this conversation, there's one more aspect that I would like to talk about, because your focus is really on the plant ecologies where your passion lies. And I know you understand things in a much more broad sense. But to go back to what we we're talking about, about um, eliminating or reducing inputs for the health of a system and for its natural biological communities to thrive in a way that also works with the economy there. One thing that I've been really passionate about is not just eliminating or reducing inputs, but transforming them into something that is actually beneficial. So for example, as we move into these higher levels of complexity, where we're taking out, let's say, synthetic inputs, machinery, and all of these things which have very limited function and very little nuance is to actually bring in the actors and the components that can adapt to and actually facilitate the complexity and the nuance that we're trying to foster. So in my opinion, that's bringing people back onto the land and taking away the simple functions of machinery that you know, only allow for a very limited scope of management, whereas humans can really create relationship. And you know, again, this is what I was talking about earlier, how cultures are what emerges from integrated stewardship of the landscape. I'm very passionate about, well, not only making 
more job opportunities, respectful livelihoods on the land, but also recognizing that the potential of a site, very much like you were talking about in, in that you're not opposed to anthropogenic influence, that it shouldn't all be just gone to rewild. And how this reminds me of there are, you know, there are many different disturbance regimes in the succession of a landscape. But actually, yeah. the exclusion of disturbance is a disturbance in and of itself, right? Oh, you nailed it. That's absolutely and, true. Yeah, and yeah. to remove human influence from an ecology is a type yeah. of disturbance in and of itself. To allow oh. something to fallow or to exclude our interaction with it is not necessarily beneficial. It just depends on the level of understanding and, and relationship that the people who are there have with it. What do you think about that? And do you see this as a potential for actually just transforming the inputs, not necessarily eliminating them? Well, definitely starting off with this idea of disturbance. And, well, you know, I think we've moved into the Anthropocene. So there's going to be a bit of, a bit more disturbance to come, right? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't need to be necessarily a negative thing if it's done in a certain way. Because... I mentioned four good reasons why the Mediterranean is so biodiverse. But what I didn't mention is simply just extensive low-intensity grazing um, and specifically transhumans. So if you look at a map of the transhumans routes in Spain, you'll see that they run along these axes, north, south, east, west, and they're moving through different, eco e uh, different uh, ecosystems. They're tr the, the cows are transporting seeds on their hooves they're going to another location and they are essentially mixing gene pools and they're moving seed uh, around. And also having the animals on the land um, creates this level of disturbance where therophytes, so annuals, essentially have like a bare earth patch, which has got warm soil. So the sun heats the soil and it's warm enough then for the seeds to germinate and they complete their life cycle. But then there's also like a lepidoptera some kind of butterfly that has a, a very close intimate relationship with that specific annual. So there's really, when you think about a landscape, it's about disturbance, what can create the best level of disturbance, usually animals, usually livestock. So they're analogous to the wild animals we used to have in Europe that were more abundant. But um, disturbance can be managed. And it can be done in a way which is actually a positive force. And it's creating a series of microhabitats all around the landscape, which gives a more biodiverse gradient, or let's say a, a, like a, a wider gradient of, of biodiversity options to exist, to occur. Um, so having that sort of approach, thinking about not thinking about something to be either static or something to be um, let's say like untouchable these nature is a living breathing dynamic system and it's always going to evolve it's always going to have disturbances you're always going to get landslides volcanic eruptions tsunamis uh, heavy floods all of these things but on a smaller scale you're also going to get just the actions of a wild deer or a pig digging for truffles and then you're going to get some annuals that will come in and grow on that patch so thinking about that that's all about soil health and that's something I've, i'm very passionate about really but there is different like plowing is not a good way to create soil disturbance tillage is not a good way to create disturbance right 
Um, but small small scale disturbance can be good from livestock or from you know just gardening. You know, you're doing your beds and you create these small areas of disturbance. But um, yeah, I think you going back to your question. Were you also suggesting this idea of community interaction and sharing of resources? Was that something that you were? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's aspects of the culture that emerges from this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you get like a very, if you turn the clock back to uh, before the First World War, when we invented synthetic chemicals, well, they weren't really widely adopted until the 1950s, let's say. But if you go back to pre-war at some point, um, people would have been farming, of course, very specific crops to their location. And then let's say in, in Portugal, we have, where I did my raising internship was, it's famous for cherries. Mm -hmm. So they have like the the best cherry in Portugal. It's really you know this time of year actually May June you get all over Lisbon in the farmers markets and shops. Um, it really only grows there mm -hmm. due to a variety of quirks. People grow the cherry further north. It just doesn't have that sort of cultural. Um, it's not a cultural icon. It, it's not doesn't define like that another region like it does there. Yeah. And through that you have obviously an ecosystem of different businesses and um, like land management systems that are built around the cherry. So, you know, thinking about that, it's like, what is specific to my place? And then how do I build an, a, an ecosystem around that from a business perspective and from a, a cultural perspective, you know? And then they have, you start having like festivals that are based around the cherry. You start having all these off, cultural offshoots that, and then the cherry becomes sacred and it becomes something that people want to look after. And yeah. when travelers visit the region, they're struck in the springtime by the beauty of the blossoms. And that's just like, you know, am, am I in Japan? No, I'm not in Japan. I'm in Fundao. <laughs> and you have this beautiful sea of cherry blossoms. So these, these things, these little um, historical quirks, I think, are super important to um, keep in the discourse, to maintain discussion about and to really say um, there's nothing wrong with previous generations um, migrating to urban centers looking for work. That was just part of the period, and that, that just was what they had to do, right? But as a consequence, you, in the Mediterranean and many other places, you have a lot of rural land abandonment. So now it's, I, see, I don't see that as a challenge. I see it as, a, as an opportunity to, for the next generation to come in and say, okay, cool, let's research what they used to do, but then let's give it the relevance of our generation and the needs and requirements of our generation and also the needs and requirements of the new soil that's there now, yeah. right? After the, after the abandonment, it's, the, the ecosystem is slightly changed and there's different conditions. So then you have to invent a new cultural legacy that your yeah. next generation is gonna inherit. And then they're gonna modify it and they're gonna modify it and the climate's gonna change, but you can modify with that. So you can make it resilient and all this, uh, no need for like doom and gloom and pessimism i think it's a fantastic time right now to have optimism and to uh as you said work from a community perspective and to understand the unique quirks of the landscape and its sort of micro habitats its character and all that good stuff i think that's that's one way forward i would say yeah 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 i think human cultures can go through that same successional model the way plant communities do as well right and exactly. the only unhealthy part of it is to remain stagnant because these just like plant communities can come back from massive disruption so can human communities you know 
and oftentimes even be better for it. Maybe you can't see it in the moment, but there's a lot of yeah. reason to be hopeful that this could bring about something even more beautiful, even more healthy in later iterations of this. But we have to start the work now. You know, that's kind yeah. of the impetus. And that's, that would, that's one of the many things that gets me up in the morning. Like, how can I play my role in this place that I now have right, right. the privilege to steward, but also the real responsibility to care for? And I mean, it's an endless learning journey about where you fit within the existing community. In my case, uh, working on learning the language, speaking with and understanding the, well, the neighbors and how they've lived. I mean, man, I could tell you some incredible stories from what I've learned around here of the grandmother of the, the woman who grew up in our house, who used to walk, I mean, it's a 20 minute drive from here, but she would walk through the mountains on foot <laughs> to go yeah. and sell her eggs in the, in the city next door to us. And I mean, that, that was not that long ago, right? That's absolutely yeah. within living memory. And okay, well, we have different tools now. We're under different conditions, uh, the political climate, all, there's all these things that need to go into an informed design, mm -hmm. as well as an adaptive installation and maintenance of what it is that we're participating with. But it's endlessly fascinating and inspiring. It's one of my biggest passions to talk about and to teach some of the entry points into this way of living and interacting with the communities and the environments that, that we all interact with, whether we do so in, in a conscious way or if it's something that's just in our background up until now. But there are opportunities to participate regardless of your experience, your skill set, your, your passions, right? Like we were talking about how, yeah. let's say the Cherries opens up opportunities for festivals and industries, but there are also all of these add-on services and uh, opportunities to to support that that may have nothing to do with caring for the trees or harvesting the fruit or getting it to market, right? It could yes. be the the healthcare worker who keeps the those workers healthy and in good shape. Yes, exactly. the next like there's room for everybody here. And That's I think exactly we can right. all at the same time benefit from a deeper understanding and and relationship with these places that, that we're based. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's that's really nicely put. It's a uh, part of rebuilding rural, rural communities that that we've got in abundance here in uh, Portugal and Spain. Uh, well, I think maybe yeah. this time it's a good place to put this bookmark in this discussion <laughs> for today. I know that we're going to be closely in touch as we both work on building our properties and developing these educational centers that we're so passionate about. And I have gotten already so much inspiration and knowledge from you. I really look forward to continuing to learn and work together in the coming years, my friend. Thank you so much, Oliver. Uh, and yeah, great to have the privilege to jump on your podcast and have a chat with you about everything that I've been up to. And I really enjoyed it. It was uh, it was very uh, inclusive. We really covered a lot of ground there. We did cover a lot of ground. Huh? This was super fun. We'll have to check in again real soon. Thanks once again to Henry. Like we mentioned at the end there, not all of the resources that Henry is working on are available yet, but I've put links to those which are in the show notes for this episode on the website, and I'll update it as soon as the others are live. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, 
exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.